You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, good morning, Stonegate. Uh, don't worry, it's not time for the benediction yet, so you didn't miss that part. So, uh, my name is Ryan, one of the pastors here at Stonegate, and uh, gosh, I'm just so excited this morning to be able to continue on in our series of Genesis. Uh, that iconic sitcom that I'm sure many of you have been fans of, The Office, uh, you have just that incredible story and character that we all love in, in a quirky way, Michael Scott. And Michael Scott is, is the boss, he's the manager, but he's also, he, he lacks self-awareness, if we're just being kind. He has moments where he wants to be spontaneous, he's got people-pleasing issues, uh, all of that. I mean, when he's looking at his job as manager, it's not necessarily to be productive and efficient and effective, but rather it's to, to be fun. And so he has a, a nemesis on the show, and that's the HR director guy, Toby. Toby is the opposite of everything that Michael Scott is. He is by the book, he is somewhat boring, he's very methodical, and he's usually casting uh, doubt and, and, and questions upon Michael's harebrained schemes. And so uh, they, they have animosity and friction between one another. And eventually, Michael eventually says to him in one episode, it's become like a really wonderful meme you'll just see pop up on the internet and social media. He says to him, why are you the way that you are? Why are you the way that you are? And he says it in just this genuine sense of feeling miffed, flummoxed, perplexed. He can't understand why Toby is the way that he is. And it's actually a, a really great question, isn't it? Why are you the way that you are? Why, why is the world the way that it is? Uh, another way of thinking about it is, what is wrong with us? What's gone wrong in the world? I mean, everyone you talk to has some notion and idea that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. It's easy to look around our world, even today, and see atrocities like what goes on in Ukraine, and genocide, and famine, and starvation and exploitation and say, what's wrong with us? See, the human condition is altogether quite interesting, isn't it? We can go to the moon and maybe one day to Mars, but we don't know why we are the way that we are. Isn't that fascinating? And for nearly three centuries now, Western nations, that's us, we're part of that tradition, we've accepted the enlightenment dogma that human beings are basically good. There's a, a problem with that, though. Beneath that goodness, that tissue paper thin veneer of civility is actually a lot of depravity. The problem we've been led to believe is not with us, but rather it's external to us. That the solution would also be external to us as well. We just need better schools, or we need new laws, or we need different people making the laws, or maybe we need better medicine to finally defeat death and allow us to age on forever, or to upload our consciousness into the cloud, or whatever it is, we come up with these solutions to solve what we think is wrong with the world around us. And whether you are swinging at the branches of politics or health or education or economic disparities or therapies or other social injustices and ills, you are still grabbing at branches instead of the root issues of our brokenness. And that will only take you so far. Perhaps G.K. Chesterton was right when he said human depravity is the one Christian teaching that can be absolutely proved. All you have to do every day is pick up the newspaper. In our day, nuclear fears and racism and poverty and war and child neglect and abandonment and selfishness 
and betrayal and loss and heartache and rejection are just constant indicators. Red lights on the dashboard that something is dreadfully wrong with us. See, what I love deeply about Genesis, and we're going to be continuing on finishing out Genesis 3 today by looking at it in totality, is that Genesis 3 is not necessarily stories about what happened, but it's stories about what's happening. That's important. Sometimes we can dismiss this as just ancient stories, but it's not. It's actually explaining. It's giving understanding, illumination to why things are the way they are today. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Jesus follower, I just want to say how glad I am that you're here this morning. You're loved. We hope you feel like this is a great place for you to ask questions. And I just want you to know we take serious questions seriously. We want to wrestle with those questions. We want to use our minds to the glory of God to ask, why is this world the way it is? Looking for profound answers that explain our experience along the way. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Genesis 3, or you can just follow along. We'll have the verses up on the screen for you. And most of you know the story. Just a quick recap for some of you who haven't been with us the last couple weeks. You know the story. The serpent comes to Eve, and he tempts her to eat from the forbidden tree. And she eventually succumbed, and she ate from it. And then Adam follows suit. But it's what happened next that I want us to focus on. Someone has described it, one scholar describes it as an avalanche of what just began as a single act of disobedience snowballed into a massive avalanche of destruction for all humanity yet to come. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in the book of Romans would go on to put it this way, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Friends, sin is like an inherited disease. Think of a, a pandemic. We don't have any experience with that, do we? It's highly contagious. It spreads. And there is no worldly cure. It spreads death to everyone who's followed in the wake of Genesis 3. At the fall, we see total depravity. And let me just correct any notions, too. Uh, this is a popular Christian and an important Christian doc doctrine of total depravity. But total depravity doesn't mean that Christians don't believe that humans are as wicked as they could be, but rather our sinfulness has contaminated and touched the total person and the total world. Basically, Genesis 3 is looking at the fallout of the fall, and that's what we'll hone in on today as we continue to see this is not in accordance with God's good design, but rather we live on east of Eden, as Genesis 3.23 tells us. Uh, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book many years ago, and it was called Genesis in Space and Time. And he described the results, he described the sentences that Adam and Eve were to receive as a series of separations, separations that continue to define us even to this very day. These separations were not part of God's design, but they're rather the result of the fall. And there's four separations. These four separations, I think, give incredible explanation and understanding from our text today of what is wrong with us. Why are you the way that you are, as Michael Scott put us? So, first separation is the separation from ourselves. The separation from ourselves. All of us feel this. You wake up every single day with maybe an existential angst or an inner turmoil or a sense of just incompleteness inside of yourself. Uh, Genesis 3, verse 7, if you remember a couple weeks ago, as Rodney preached on it, it says this. It says, after they ate, Adam and Eve, it says the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. 
So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. If you're looking at that text, it seems like this is the the first time they experienced a sense of self-consciousness, insecurity, a sense of of shame, a sense of inadequacy that there's something in them they're lacking. There's something that's incomplete. They need to cover themselves up and hide. There's an immediate sense of unease and discomfort with themselves. Uh, Cornelius Plantinga, in his incredible book, uh, Not the Way Things Are Supposed to Be, he put it like this. It wasn't merely that they flinched when their partner's gaze dipped southward. It was also that they had trouble looking into each other's eyes. They lost that ability to feel complete, to feel whole, to feel accepted. So we talked about a couple of weeks ago, nakedness is that sense of guilt. There's something wrong with me. I need to cover up. If people really see me, if they understand who I really am, they will reject me. It's this psychological dislocation that we can walk around in this world feeling like we are far from home. Friends, when our relationship with God was severed, our relationship with ourselves was also severed. We lack the wholeness that we were made to experience and live in light of. Part of this also, what we're seeing is the the separation from self. There's this, this separation from themselves. I mean, think about your inner life every day, the things that are churning beneath the surface inside you, moments where you maybe feel numb inside. You don't even know what you feel. You can't even identify it. Maybe there's deep anxiety. You're thinking about some impending doom that's awaiting you or your loved ones, or you live with a sense of dread and fear. How about, have you ever felt out of place, like you don't belong? Do you ever feel uncomfortable in your own skin, never quite at peace? Or maybe in our world too, as sin contaminates and touches all parts of our identity, it even seeps its way in to our sexual being. Our world right now has all sorts of confusion and disorientation about sexual identity and gender, as Jimmy preached on a number of weeks ago. We struggle to trust each other, don't we? Maybe we struggle to even trust ourselves. How many of you have sat in a group and you have felt all together alone? Robert Putnam, Harvard sociologist, a number of years ago, he wrote a a classic book called Bowling Alone. And he talked about how bowling was becoming the number one sport in America for people to do, but really people did it individually. And he called this crowded loneliness, where even though we were crowded together, we crowd together in coffee shops and bowling alleys, we still feel like we're miles apart from other people. Social media gave us this incredible promise, didn't it? That we would all be connected. That worked out well, right? (laughs) Gosh, talk about false advertising. If anything, it's created greater division than ever before. We only find ourselves further separated, separated from ourselves. And what about the masks that we wear? Even the masks, let's just be honest, that we even wear into church. Maybe you are wearing, some of you are wearing your best Sunday mask right now. You're putting on pretense, you're performing, you're keeping up an image. Because underneath there's just this sense, if someone was to fully know me, would I be fully loved? And can I actually be fully known? And maybe we even lack the idea of what it means to be fully understood that there is a place that I could be free. 
Or maybe we question our motives. I mean, how many of you, I find myself in this spot all the time, I don't even know why I do what I do. I feel disconnected. I feel separated sometimes even from my very own motivations. You know, think about what caused you to scream and cut off that guy in that Ford F-150? Why did you have that fourth glass of wine last night? Why did you binge three hours of Netflix while your kids asked you to play with them? Am I getting too real? Just asking. Why? See, here's the thing. Even you don't know. You don't even know. And we can analyze. We can, we can be paralyzed even by our analysis. Jeremiah, he said this, the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? I can't. I'm separated. Separated even from myself. And this virus of sin introduced all these inner separations. Our efforts at covering up manifest themselves in great self-deceptions and realities of self-justifications and me externalizing and blaming and pushing the problems outward because I feel confused inward. We are not at home within ourselves. A sense of restlessness. The prophet Isaiah described it like this, but the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. You catch that, mire and mud. I mean, as that life is just churning, that inner life is churning, mire and mud just make it more and more cloudy and confusing. And we move on to our second separation, that sentence for sin that we see inside of Genesis 3. Second, and this is the greatest separation of all, is the separation of God from man. That is the problem, right? Can you actually imagine anything more hellish than that? Friends, that is hell, to be separated from the one you were made to enjoy, to have communion with. See, this is what happens as the story continues on. They, the Adam and Eve, from, we were looking at this a couple of weeks ago, they heard a sound of the Lord, and, and as God was walking in the garden in the cool of day, and they, they hid. They found a place to move away from God. They experienced separation. Before that, they were used to open communication with God. They were used to communion with God. And now that had been lost. Adam and Eve had been comfortable in the presence of God, but now they hid from him in their guilt. They're afraid of God, and they don't want to be in his presence at all. And the truth is, if, if we're just being honest, as we look at our own hearts and our motivations and sometimes the shame and the guilt that we live with, we can identify with that, can't we? At the end of chapter 3, we see the sentence of separation between God and man. Here's what it says, verse 23 and 24. It says, so the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to the tree of life. This is separation. They're separated from the tree of life. They're separated from paradise, the place they were made to live. But most importantly, they're separated from God. In that tragic two verses there, we actually see the bursting of the fantasy that the serpent lied to Adam and Eve about it. Like you would know and become like God. Well, in some ways, they, it was the exact opposite. They experienced the knowledge of dust and death and pain and loss and separation. 
So God drove them out and they're alienated from their, crea- from their creator, the author and source of life. And every single one of us, because all of us are sinners, we are not born into a world in which we are innocent and we are blank slates. That's not true. That's not how we come into the world. We come into the world already saying a sense of, God, not your will be done, but my will be done. God, not your kingdom, but my kingdom. We're not born into a world as a blank slate, but rather we're born into this world with a sense of sin. Sin has infected all of us. And this is the death sentence that God promised to Adam. And he executes this death sentence. Not by the way, I thought when I read this this story when I was a little kid, I thought like, well, I guess if he eats of the tree, like a lightning bolt immediately strikes him dead. That's not what happens. The death sentence for Adam that God promised him, it actually plays out through separation. Because where does life come from? Life comes from God. And as man is separated from God, he begins to wilt. He begins to shrivel. In John 15, what does Jesus tell us? Jesus says, abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. He's actually recasting and reminding us that, that he is the source of life, that apart from God, there is no life. You know, we have uh, some flowers in a vase on our countertop right now, and I was just looking at them the other day. I'm just thinking to myself, I'm looking at those flowers, they, they seem altogether healthy. They're vibrant, they have wonderful colors, but they are already dead. They're dying. In a matter of time, now that they've been separated, now that they've been cut off, now that they've been removed from the vine, they will surely wilt and wither and shrivel along the way. And our souls wither and shrivel apart from God. And so in this world, we can, we can obsess over exercise and diet and try to make ourselves as healthy as possible. But friends, I would argue and I would I'd petition before you that nothing is heavier or more unhealthy than living with sin. It is our unraveling. And oftentimes you can read these passages of scripture and you can be like, well, well, what does this have to do with me? Like, I wasn't there. Why am I responsible? Why am I in on Adam's bad decision? You ever thought that as you read through this story? This is called the the doctrine of federal representative head. So Adam was our federal representative. He was our stand-in. He was the one who would make a decision that would have cascading effects for us all. And we actually understand this notion and idea, don't we? I mean, think about it. If you're a mom or a dad, if you decide tomorrow you're going to move to to California, let's just say, I don't know, maybe some of you Texans, you want to move there, Uh, the the reverse migration. But say you want to move there, guess what? As representatives, as heads of your family, that has consequences for your children, doesn't it? They don't get a voice, they don't get a vote per se, but it's still gonna have consequences for them. Or let's say you're a CEO of a large corporation and you decide to move your corporation or your business somewhere else. The the employees are affected, they're gonna live with the consequences of that decision. Uh, Think of it this way, it is like being in a canoe, and if one person drops an anvil in the bottom of that canoe, everyone in the canoe is going down with you. And so you and I, as part of humanity, as, as part of the lineage of Adam and Eve, we find ourselves under the same consequences of sin. Sin is silly, isn't it? 
In our better moments, we realize just how stupid it is, that it's the ultimate form of self-abuse, that it is us running our hand against a piece of splintered wood, against the grain of how the Lord made the world. The rest of Genesis just continues to play out in this same pattern of folly, of each person taking their turn around the cul-de-sac of sin, looking to justify themselves. The third separation, and that's the separation from one another. Relationships changed dramatically in Genesis 3. The third separation is between humans, between man and his fellow man. A social separation took place. We see this right away as God asks Adam, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? How did Adam respond? Well, Adam responded as we looked at last time. He responds that it it wasn't his fault. He does what we classically do with sin. We do two two things. Here's the classic responses humans have to sin. We do shame or we do blame, and we do them really well. So he blames his wife. He says, I'm the victim. She's the one that made me do it. God, God, it's, it's, it's all on her. I'm just removing responsibility as far as I can. And the woman doesn't take responsibility either. She basically says, the devil made me do it. So now the human race created to live in love and companionship and connection is divided, not just by shame, but also by blame. See how blame creates division. And this plays out for a multitude of ways. It plays out in strife between the sexes, as the text goes on to tell us. Men and women, we were made, we were designed, as we looked at a couple weeks ago in Genesis 2, to complement, to reflect the glory of the image of God. God made us distinct, male and female, to show, to reflect the glory and the goodness of God. But as a sentence, as a part of the separation of the fall, instead of complimenting, there's competing. And so one of the temptations, one of the struggles, one of the curses and sentences handed down to Eve is in verse 16. It says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Friends, that's not how God designed it. That's not how God wanted it. And you know, as I sat with the text and just thought about the story, the, this story the last couple of weeks, um, and, and I might step on a few landmines here, okay? So if I do, someone send a medic up for me, okay? Just come up and help me. You all cool with that? So just, I, I might need some help. But in that desire to rule over, I want you to think about something, because where was Adam as Eve was taking that fruit? Well, Adam wasn't far away. Adam was right there. And Adam's sin might not have been that he went first, but rather his sin was one of passivity. Adam had the sin of omission instead of lovingly protecting and serving and initiating and looking out for the well-being of his wife, of complimenting him, of using his strength to push against the lies of Satan, he did nothing. And so if you're Eve, wouldn't that make you feel a little bit like, how do I trust someone like that? Maybe I do need to compensate for his passivity, for his lack of initiative, for his unwillingness to stand up. Adam set into motion this idea that there would be competition and often at times even exploitation between the sexes. Men, we are not created to dominate and exploit and rule over women. Although that has often been much more of the standard throughout human history than we would like to admit. 
You see Genesis 3.16 playing out, but men, actually, we are called to lovingly serve and lay down our lives for our wives, that we are to use our strengths so that they might thrive and flourish, that we are to take on burdens so our family can be blessed. What did Jesus do for his bride? Well, we know exactly what he did for his bride. His bride was the church. He laid down his life for his bride. He didn't say, you know what, here are all my privileges. Here's all the ways I can rule over you. Here's all the things I can get from you. Here's all the ways I can exploit you. But he said, I want to love you. I want to serve you. I'm going to lay down my life for you so that you would live and flourish. But on this side of Eden, the fallout of the fall is often the default starting place is not necessarily usually complimenting, but competing. And we see this play out in all sorts of additional relationships too, don't we? People move from a place, instead of being curious about people that are different than them or have different ideas or different beliefs or different values or live different ways, we move from curious to furious, don't we? They must be the bad guy. They don't think like me. They don't believe like me. They don't vote like me. They don't do everything just like me. And we lose that sense of curiosity and we move into a place of hostility. We see this play out even just in the next chapter, we'll look at soon, where Cain murders his brother Abel. And then when God comes, he asks him this incredibly revealing question. He says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain replies, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What he's basically saying is, it's not my problem. I'm separated from him. He does his thing, I do my thing. I'm an individual, I worry about me. And friends, I often do wonder and I get a little queasy when I see so much of that in the American mindset and mentality seeped into the church. But rather the church is supposed to be a family where we do answer in the affirmative, I am my brother's keeper. I should look out for their well-being. I should lovingly serve that person and be willing to go the extra mile. I should not consider myself in high regard, but rather I should humble myself and be willing to serve others even if I'm not noticed. This is so countercultural. This is just the beginning of all the great divisions amongst humankind, all the wars and all the fights. There's male and female divisions as we just looked at. There's racial divisions that we feel inside and experience inside of our culture. There's prejudice. There's marriages that end in conflict and divorce and violence. We look in our world right now, as we talked about earlier, there are divisions among nations. It's just the way it is. And friends, we were made to be connected, connected to God, but also connected to one another. I would just argue and encourage all of you that we live in a time where people um, are experiencing an incredible epidemic of loneliness. The average man over the age of 40 has less than one meaningful, true friend. You know, studies show actually that if, if you're a male over the age of 40, that if you have less than one real friend, a friend you can be honest with, a friend you can be known by, a friend you can talk to, your lifespan shortens by seven years. Seven years. It's not that it's just a nice thing to have friends, but it's essential. We are made to be connected to other people. And sometimes during a pandemic where there's been so much social distancing and isolating, that muscle of community, that sense of how do I connect with other people, put myself out there, not have unrealistic expectations, be willing to serve, be willing to listen, those muscles, they atrophy. 
And I would argue for a lot of us, one of the most important things we could do is commit ourselves once again to just getting on a good exercise regimen of working out those relational muscles, of befriending someone, of, of, of just saying to someone, will, will you be my friend? And being a good friend, someone who listens, someone who's willing to serve, someone who's willing to care. This is us pushing back against this separation we all experience. And friends, I would just say too, community is hard for everyone. Oftentimes we bring in unrealistic expectations or past hurts and experiences along the way. I would just say keep showing up, trusting the Lord in his goodness. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I watch people step into groups and they kind of want the microwave reality of like, man, I showed up once and I've got six amazing friends in 30 minutes. And it just doesn't work that way. You know, I mean, what good microwave meal do you eat? Well, you're not gonna have any good microwave relationships. But rather, great relationships, they're much more like a crock pot. They just take time. You gotta set that thing at breakfast and wait till you come home at 5 p.m. I mean, and that, for anything good to be in there, you just gotta stay. You gotta be committed to it. And then the last separation that we see, the separation of, of humans from the rest of God's creation. This one, I mean, it's just so evident. Tomorrow's Monday, right? We're gonna wake up and we're gonna experience the futility of work. We're gonna experience some of the pain of that. And in verse 17 and 19, the Lord gives that separation. He gives that sentence. Here's what God says to Adam. God said to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat from the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your, fruit, your food. See, the blessing of work, and you and I are made for work. Sometimes we have this misconception of heaven, that heaven's much more like a, a Four Seasons in Maui, and someone just brings you, you know, uh, drinks with fruit in them all day long, and, and you, you, I don't know, do whatever you want to do there. But it's not that. You'll still work. God's giving you gifts and abilities. But, but what's happened inside of this separation is now a lot of our work has been cursed. We experience the futility of it. I mean, how many of you can relate to that? I mean, as you're applying your craft, as you're working in your job, as you're toiling to gain skill, and sometimes it all just still falls apart. And we even see that in the creation. The creation is marked by thorns and thistles, as God says, that it'll now be harder. There'll be things that are in opposition to your fruitfulness. There's weeds and erosions and floods and droughts and tornadoes and pandemics, all as a result of sin. The New Testament actually expands just how significant and severe this is. Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says this. All of creation is, is groaning and waiting for its redemption, longing to be redeemed by the Creator. So even the ground has been cursed. And there's no longer a direct correlation or connection that your labor will automatically result in reward. Sometimes your labor will actually be futile. Sometimes our work just does not work. And that can be hard. It's just another separation that we feel. And then another one of those creation experiences and sentences that the Lord cast down, it's right there in verse 16. It says as well, and he gives this one to the woman. He says, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. I almost feel like that's an understatement, right, ladies? Very severe, it should be like very, very, very 
severe. Now, I, I, I feel unqualified to even comment on this verse, but I have been a firsthand observer three times. And I will just say this verse is completely true, right? Uh, this, this, I mean, I, seeing what my wife went through and she got drugs, I actually said, can I get some of those drugs? I mean, just whatever I can do to erase the memory of just how severely painful this is. The pains of childbirth are real and we start to see a pattern that actually life will come through death. And every labor is a microcosm of that. The death pangs and the labor pains, but out of that comes incredible and new life. See, when you think about it, this world has been altogether set up in a way where life is now hard. There are separations, there are difficulties, there are pains all along the way for us. But do you know what the most amazing thing about all this is? That despite all of this, despite all of these separations that we've looked at, we are still made in the image of God. You know, sometimes uh, we, we start doing our theology in Genesis 3, and we just think that, that we're no good, that we're rotten, that we're worm food. And in, in, in one sense, that's true, but we can't lose sight and not be reminded still of Genesis 2 that you are made in the image of God, that you have dignity and value and worth because of whose image you are made in. In fact, we know that the image of God is not scraped away or taken away from us at the fall. And Christian, this is an important theological point. Genesis 9 verse 6 says this, God lays down the law about murder and he says, whoever sheds blood of man by man shall his blood be shed for in the image of God has man been made. So even in our sin and our brokenness, we do not lose the image of God. What theologians say happens to the image of God inside of the fall is not that the image of God is removed, but rather that it's defaced, that it's marred, that it's been disfigured. You know, almost think of an, an old painting. I was looking at some, some paintings a couple weeks ago, and, and one of them they had, uh, was this person that, it was that show where they, they take it to the, the antique guys and they tell them how much, how much it's worth and all that stuff. And, uh, it, you know, it's always fun to see what people pull out of their attics. <clears throat> um, but there, he has this painting, and this painting, it was, it was dusty and had smudges all over, and then they restored it. And underneath it was this incredible, priceless piece of art. And the guy said, it's worth $85,000. Now, you, wouldn't, you never would have known looking at the original image of it because it had been smeared and defaced and it had gathered dust. But underneath that was still a masterpiece. So friends, even in all of these separations, you still are loved. Even in our sin and brokenness, we are still human. We still are image bearers of God. Friends, I want to say this, and, and you know, I hope this is an encouragement for you, and it's just answering some of those bigger questions we feel. We live in a world that is very focused and is not having a hard time believing in the notion of equality, right? Equality is a very popular reason right now. But friends, I would argue outside of, of, of this framework that we're seeing inside of Genesis, that, that there's not much reason to believe in equality. If you really are just left with an evolutionary mindset, then really might makes right survival of the fittest, and some people just are more equal than others. But yet what we learn from the scriptures that all of us have equal worth and value because of God's view of us, because how God sees us. See, friends, you have firm footing and foundation to stand on when you talk about equality when you talk about justice, 
when you talk about right and wrong because we are made in the image of a God who loves us. So we're hopeless to remedy this situation, right? If you look at verse 24, once again, the, the sentence is severe. Adam and Eve are cast out into thorns and thistle, thistles and pain and loss and sorrow, and they will bite the dust. That's where we get that expression from. To bite the dust means to return into the dust. And guess what? They can't do anything about it. They're helpless. They're hopeless, just like you and me. We think we're so much more advanced than them, right? We think we've got Elon Musk and he's going to solve all of our problems. It's, friends, it's not working. Technology will not save us. We are hopeless in this predicament, in these separations. This is the fixed condition of humanity. But God. But God. See, even in these moments of sentences and these separations, there is a whisper of grace. There is a glimmer of hope. When it's most bleakest, the Lord already is at work. We see this hint in verse 21, where the Lord made garments for Adam and Eve, then he clothed them right there in the garden of God. God met their shame. He met their nakedness with provision. And this provision came from a, a sacrifice, an animal, an animal who gave its life, who the Lord used as a sacrifice to clothe over, to cover over their guilt. This is the first act of atonement in the Bible. It took more than fig leaves, though, to adequately clothe the sinful man and woman. It would take more than the sacrifice of an animal. It would take more than the shedding of the blood of an animal. And only God would eventually be able to provide that sacrifice. And this leads us to another hint, doesn't it? You might have noticed we skipped over verse 15 earlier. And verse 15 is known as the, the proto-euangelion, which just means the first gospel. And I love this. Don't miss this, church. This is absolutely incredible. Who preaches the first gospel? God. God is the first one to speak. God is the first one to act. God is the first one to initiate. When you and I were hopeless, when we were reckless, God preaches the very first gospel. And he says this in verse 15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What does that mean? It means the, through a man, it means through a man born of a woman, Satan would be crushed. And who is this man, friends? This man is Jesus. The Bible calls him the second Adam. It's like the ultimate do-over. It's the ultimate restoration. It's the ultimate renovation. You see, Adam failed, but the second Adam would not fail. Adam was tempted in paradise and failed. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and he resisted and he beat Satan. But Satan still had one poisonous bite and he took his bite at the cross of Christ as spikes were driven into his heels and it looks like defeat. It looks like the serpent would be victorious with his venom. 
and that the long-awaited offspring of the woman would die. But three days later, Jesus rises from the grave. And that's why we gather on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, not just on Easter, but every Sunday, because friends, Jesus is still risen. He is risen indeed, he is risen today, and he is risen every day. And the serpent loses, Jesus wins. The writer of Hebrews says this, since children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. Jesus shared in our humanity so that by his death, we might break the power of him who holds the power of death. And that is the devil. And he frees those all with their lives who were held in slavery by their fear of death. Friends, sin is separation. That's what it is, it's separation and you and I being cut off, being excommunicated, being removed from our life source, from the one we were meant to have perfect communion and fellowship with leads to our death and our destruction. But our God was not content to allow things to stay that way. So he makes the first move. He preaches the first gospel. He sets redemptive history in motion. And if you were to read the rest of the storyline of the Bible, all it really is, is God pursuing and wooing and coming after his people and narrowing the gaps of separation. You move into the story of Genesis and God comes to Abraham and he says, through you, there will be a savior and there will be offspring as many of the stars who will be saved and followers of me. And then eventually he comes to Mount Sinai, but, but Mount Sinai is only a place where Moses could go. It was access of one. So then God wasn't content with that. He wanted to move closer. So what did he do to move closer? Well, he begins to tabernacle with the Israelites, which really just means portable tent. So God moves into a portable tent where some could go in, but you had to be a priest. So access for a few. But our God wasn't content with access for just a few. Rather, he wanted access for all, for all, for all. That's who he wanted access for that you and I could enter into the presence and the goodness of God, that we could have fellowship with God, that we could be with God, our Savior. And he does this through the cross. He restores us and he heals us in the cross. Adam and Eve hid behind a tree, naked to cover up their shame. And Jesus hanged on a tree, naked to conquer our shame who we're talking about. And so how does this story end? Beyond this life, you and I are promised a new Eden. We'll get back into the garden, friends. Not because of our merits, not because of what we've done, but because of what God's done. In the last chapter of the Bible, we read that a holy city, a new Eden, where a river of life flows from the throne of God and there is a tree of life loaded with fruit. But who gets to be there and eat it? Listen to what it says. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by its gates. Who gets to be there? Not those wearing fig leaves, but sinners who've washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming and meeting us at our very worst and giving us your very, very best. 
And Lord, as we live east of Eden, as we live in this already not yet world, groaning and yearning for the day in which you will return, Lord, would you sustain us? Would you give us the grace that we need for today? Would you encourage those who walked into this room feeling the effects of the fall, those who are discouraged, those who feel incredible separation even from themselves, deep anxiety or insecurity or a sense of restlessness, a sense of confusion, a sense of addiction and compulsion? Lord, would they know that there's hope, that there's healing, that there's restoration because of you, Jesus? And Lord, for those walking in this room just feeling alienated from you, God, far removed from you, not believing that there is a God who loves them, that is for them, that is not trying to punish them, but is actually trying to bring them home, would you, would you bridge that separation? Would they hear that first gospel, that there is a Savior who loves them, who's willing to die for them, who's willing to make atonement for their sin and their shame? so they can drop the pretense, they can let go of their fig leaves, they can exhale and take a deep breath of grace, knowing God that you are for them. And today, today would be the day for them to let go of their sin and to follow you, to become a Christian. And God also, would you just give us a sense of, of hope for some of us who maybe feel weary, tired, broken, relationally lonely, separated from others, that our work is futile? Would we know that it won't always be that way, that you see us, Lord, in the midst of that, that you'll carry us safely home? Lord, we know that you are the author of life. And as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. So Lord, would you give us the rest that we so desperately need in your name, amen.